millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My cousin is in the military and um, he's, he's fighting the fight so that his children can return to their home. Um, and, and I don't sense any doubt in his mind or in any of the Ukrainians who I know in Ukraine. I don't sense any doubt in their mind that that will happen. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm David Andrews. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today I'm joined by Dr. Sonia Mitsak, Research Fellow at the ANU Centre for European Studies, Dr. Anton Mosenko, lecturer in law at the Australian National University. Together we'll be reflecting on the last 12 months since Russia invaded Ukraine and looking forward to perhaps where the war might yet go and how it might conclude. Welcome, Sonia and Anton. Thank you. Hi, David. Sonia, if I might start with you, could you remind our listeners uh, how the war came about in the first place? Um, What was the basis for Putin's decision to invade Ukraine? Was there some kind of driving idea or myth that seems to have motivated Russia's actions? Mm. Well, it's it's a very pertinent question to begin with because when Russian troops began amassing on the borders of Ukraine, um, you know, a year ago, most Australians understood this to be a recent act of aggression. And what was not well understood um, was that the full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24 uh, was not a first, it was actually a further invasion of Ukraine. And what I mean by that is that what we're seeing now is actually part of a war begun by Russia eight, close to nine years ago now, uh, from the time in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and invaded and occupied parts of eastern Ukraine, two regions within eastern Ukraine. Now, over that eight years, some 15,000 Ukrainian soldiers and civilians had been killed. And so Ukrainians had been living uh, with war. They'd been living with the threat of further invasion. And then, of course, on February 24, we saw an invasion of the entire country from nine different directions. Now, you mentioned a kind of... um, you know, uh, underlying idea. Well, yes, there is. Uh, really, these what what we're seeing now um, as military incursions. First of all, we need to understand that they were undertaken immediately following um, the Maidan Revolution of Dignity. Now, this was um, a civilian uh, protest 
which occurred during from November 2013 through to February 2014. Now, at that time, the uh, President Yanukovych, Viktor Yanukovych, um, who was seen by the Ukrainian population to be acting in the interests of Russia rather than the interests of Ukraine, uh, stepped down and fled to Russia. And at that point, Putin understood that he was no longer going to be able to control Ukraine politically. Um, we then saw very, very swiftly, only one week after Yanukovych had fled to Russia, um, Russian troops moving into Crimea. But what the 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 back the further backstory um, to these last eight or nine years uh, is that Russian imperialist ideology is what underlies Putin's agenda. And what I mean, I mean two things by that. Firstly, Putin has imperialistic ambitions to take control of Ukrainian territory and re-establish a Russian empire. Now, such ambitions date back hundreds of years, actually, to the Tsarist Empire and then later the Soviet Union. And, of course, Putin himself has never accepted the disintegration of the Soviet Union. Now, secondly, Putin does not accept the existence of an independent Ukraine. Russian imperialist ideology simply does not recognise that Ukrainians are a separate people um, with their own language and culture and identity. And it's this ideology that lies at the base of Putin's actions here. And in fact, both of these factors were evident in Putin's televised address um, to the people of Russia on February 21, um, in which he stated that Ukrainian statehood was a fiction and that his so-called special military operation was to reclaim ancient Russian lands. And, of course, we're, we're heading to the anniversary of that, um, you know, decisive 21st of February um, address. Could I, just to sort of pick up on a point you've raised there, that um, sort of, I suppose, in the, the aftermath of the Cold War and the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and there are other states that... Uh, that Russia has invaded or sort of sought to annex some of their territory. I mean, Georgia comes to mind for me, first of all, um, as another instance where this has happened, I think, back about 2008, 2009. Is there something distinct about Ukraine uh, in, in that sort of ideological sense that, that as you say, um, Putin has never accepted that Ukraine actually exists as a country and a distinct people? Is, is that a particular aspect about the actions in Ukraine as opposed to somewhere like Georgia? Look, I think there are two things to say about that. And first is the ideological aspect. Um, part, part of Russia's uh, disinformation and propaganda campaign, you know, is to portray Ukraine as nothing more than um, you know, an ancient part of Russia. Now, Russia's been engaging the, the Russian Empire previous to the Soviet Union, previous to uh, Putin's uh, Russia, has been engaging in, in the sort of falsification of history, um, whereby Ukraine is not acknowledged um, as having originated from the primeval, medieval uh, Ukrainian state, Kiev and Rus. And Ukraine is not acknowledged um, as being separate in terms of identity, culture, language, and even statehood. Um, that certainly um, that certainly underlies Putin's particular 
um, emphasis on Ukraine and Ukraine's importance um, as a kind of ideological um, necessity for any Russian empire that's going to be uh, recreated. But I think we also need to um, take into account that apart from ideology, Ukraine is very, very good real estate. I mean, Ukraine was the powerhouse um, that drove the Soviet Union, um, both in terms of agriculture and in terms of industry. Um, and Ukraine is very, very valuable um, territory. Uh, you know, we've seen now, looking at the issue of global food security, we've understood how important a role Ukraine plays in the production of food. Um, you know, Ukraine has very, very valuable um, agricultural territory. I mean, the, the, it has extremely fertile soil, the black soil, uh, Chorinozem. You know, almost nearly a quarter of the world's most fertile soil is located in Ukraine. Now, that means that, for example, Ukraine is the world's largest producer and exporter of sunflower oil. Ukraine is the world's fourth largest grain exporter. It's the fourth largest producer and exporter of agricultural goods in the world. So, you know, that's that's one aspect of Ukraine's worth. And then you look at the east of Ukraine and that is a territory which is rich in metal and mineral deposits. So we're talking coal, we're talking iron ore, natural gas, magnesium, mercury. I mean, there are minerals there that I've actually never even heard of. Um, and the east of Ukraine is also a steel and iron industrial centre. Um, Ukraine has very developed heavy industries, advanced aviation, for example, shipbuilding, um, most of which is located in the east and the south of Ukraine. Um, Ukraine has had a very highly advanced technological sector. So it is also a land grab. I mean, it is also just um, Putin's attempt to take control of very, very valuable territory. Thanks, Sonia. That's a really fantastic overview of uh, of, of that background and that context and I think help, will help a lot of people understand your, your sort of the, the how and why this is all come about. But Anton, if I could turn to you now, I was hoping that you could perhaps give us some insights into the way that the international community has responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think that we, we know that the United States has provided over $30 billion in military assistance and nearly another $7 billion coming from Britain and the European Union. But what about things like sanctions or other legal measures? What, what kind of steps have been taken in that regard and how effective have they been? On the sanctions front, I think that Western nations have done everything they possibly could short of the things that really matter. And what I mean is that if I just took my time to list all the various sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, it would probably take me 20 minutes, all the way from the asset freezes on the hundreds of members of the Russian parliament to the more esoteric measures, such as the UK prohibiting the provision of auditing and management consultancy services to all Russian companies, public or private. But if we zoom out a bit and ask, us, ask ourselves, what are the points of pressure that really matter? I think there are three aspects to that. The first one would be a complete embargo on the Russian energy supplies to the West, which is a major way for Russia to generate the funds that it needs for the war effort. The second 
part of that would be the complete disconnection of Russian banks from the global financial system. And here I'm talking about the prohibition of correspondent banking services to Russian banks. And finally, the third measure that really matters is the freezing of the assets of the Russian Central Bank. And the only uh, part of this three-pronged effort, uh, uh, three-pronged effort that we have seen uh, come into place is actually the third component, the freezing of the assets of the Russian Central Bank. And that was done extremely quickly, literally two days after the full-scale invasion. And that was done in a multilateral fashion by the United States, but also all other G7 economies, including the European Union, uh, Japan, and um, other countries. Um, so that has happened. But the other bits of the puzzle that are still missing are also crucial. And if I could speculate a bit, I would uh, venture to suggest that the reason why those things did not happen is because imposing those sorts of sanctions would also backfire on the Western nations that resort to those measures in terms of raising prices for the population and having economic ramifications for the countries that are imposing those sanctions in the way that the freezing of the central bank assets did not have those kinds of ramifications. And so I think that on the one hand, we're seeing a sustained multilateral effort, which is important in practical and symbolic terms. But on the other hand, we're seeing those glaring gaps. And it's not only us who's seeing those gaps, it's Mr. Putin as well. And obviously, the signal that that seems to be sending to him is that uh, the, the the West is prepared to walk the walk to a degree, but not all the way, um, as long as some economic downside would uh, ensue from the sanctions. So it is a bit of a mixed picture, I would say. Uh, comparing these sanctions that have been imposed upon Russia and upon Russian individuals, how do they compare with previous instances of wide-ranging sanctions regimes? I think we all probably understand that there are sanctions regularly imposed on countries and individuals, whether it's Iran or North Korea. Um, but my impression was that that these are at a level of difference that is greater than much of what has come before. Is that true? How do they compare with other examples? They are different in that, um, as I mentioned, the uh, freezing of the central bank assets uh, in that amount is, as far as I know, unprecedented. Uh, but on the other hand, we have not seen um, a what what people in the US would call a maximum pressure campaign of the kind that has been brought to bear on uh, Iran uh, or indeed North Korea. Those are countries that uh, really have become international pariahs um, and uh, their entanglements with the global economy have effectively unraveled. We have not seen that to quite the same extent in relation to Russia. Uh, to give you one example of that, which I think uh, brings the point into sharp relief, when the full-scale invasion began, a lot of attention was focused on the uh, disconnection of several Russian banks from the SWIFT payment network, which would make it much more difficult for the Russian businesses to interact with um, customers and um, um, other business partners in the rest of the world. And Actually, what happened was very, very limited in terms of its reach. Uh, it was only a handful of Russian banks that was disconnected from the SWIFT payment network. And we also have to bear in mind that if you're disconnected from SWIFT 
per se, that doesn't mean that you can't engage with foreign banks. You just don't have the access to a system that makes that engagement easy and convenient. So you've got a hurdle in your way, but that doesn't mean that you're completely shut off from international commerce. And so we've seen uh, a movement that was almost a declaration of intent saying, look, Russia, you know, you could find yourself outside the global economic tent, but we haven't actually seen the action that would follow through on that. And I think that's very much the story of uh, Russia-related sanctions to date. If I just one final question, I think particularly from an, an Australian instance, uh, there's been a lot of talk recently around uh, the Magnitsky Act and Magnitsky sanctions. Uh, people might have heard the, the word or seen it in a newspaper, but probably don't know what they refer to and what they mean. Um, could you perhaps just give us a, a brief summary of what that refers to and whether that's um, a set of processes that Australia has put in place against Russian individuals? Yes. So if we imagine the whole universe of different sanctions measures, they can be directed against the state as a whole. So I think the government or central bank or uh, key government agencies of the state, they can be directed against particular sectors of the economy or they can be directed against specific individuals. So Magnitsky sanctions are directed against specific individuals, and those people are hit with asset freezes and travel bans. But not only that, the traditional understanding of Magnitsky sanctions is that they're imposed by reference to corruption and human rights abuse. So technically speaking, if we've got a Russia-related sanctions program, and hundreds of members of the Russian state Duma are sanctioned, that's not really Magnitsky-style sanctions because the reason for the imposition of sanctions is Russia's malicious activity rather than corruption or human rights abuse. So here we're getting a bit into the weeds and kind of in the domain of legal technicalities. But I would make just a couple of quick observations on the Australian stance in particular. So Australia has got its new Magnitsky sanctions regime, which has been used against two batches of individuals from Russia and I think one batch of individuals from Iran. Um, In about a year um, since that sanctions regime was put in place. So that is not necessarily a pace of designation that would strike fear in the hearts of corrupt officials and human rights abusers from all over the world. I think Australia could really do more on that front. So that's one component of that. On the other hand, though, under Russia-specific sanctions programs, Australia has imposed um, a variety of restrictions on uh, a very significant number of Russia-related individuals. Uh, One of those persons happens to be challenging those sanctions in the federal court more or less as we speak, a Russian businessman who thinks that he was mistakenly listed. Uh, But uh, here there's an interesting question of how many of those people actually have assets in Australia, Uh, say for the person who's challenging those sanctions, what is the practical impact of sanctions? And here I think there are two schools of thought. And some people would say, if those people, if, if the sanctioned individuals don't have assets in Australia, sanctioning them is pointless and sort of debases the value sanctions because they don't really matter. And the other school of thought, which I'm more sympathetic to, says, well, actually, that means that you uh, basically have greater freedom in imposing sanctions. Challenges to them are less likely. And you might just say that, you know, if someone is a crook, you might say that they're a crook. 
um, and you would presumably feel less constrained in doing so because they're less likely to challenge those sanctions. Fantastic. Thanks, Anton. That's that's a really, um, I mean, I can't say that I was uh, a deep sanctions ex- expert before, but I feel like I know a whole lot more now. Uh, Sonia, if I could just return to you now, I'd be interested to hear uh, your insights on the civilian experience in Ukraine during the war. You know, I think we've seen um, reporting of widespread accounts of um, alleged war crimes committed by uh, Russian soldiers and mercenary groups against uh, the Ukrainian military as well as civilians. Uh, we see stories of the regular bombardments of urban areas and key infrastructure sites. Um, but then we've also seen great acts of heroism and resistance and defiance by the defending population. Um, so what, what can you tell us about the experience of, uh, of the war from Ukrainians on the ground? On the ground, of course, it's an experience uh, which is cruel, uh, traumatic. I, you know, I almost don't know where to begin. There are several aspects that we need to to um, talk about, even if just briefly. Uh, firstly, let's look at the fact that Russian rocket and missile attacks. Um, are occurring on a daily basis uh, in Ukraine today. Um, This is part of the Russian strategy of terrorising the population by striking civilian targets. Now, every day uh, what is reported is missile and rocket strikes um, against, you know, 10 or more regions in Ukraine. and. If we just have a look at what something like that looks like, let's take one day, the 29th of January. Now, the Russian military attacked nine separate regions of Ukraine, nine separate parts of Ukraine. Let's take one part, Kherson region. It hit the, it struck, Russian forces struck the Kherson region 42 times. They struck a port, a hospital, a school, a bus station, a post office, a bank, and a residential apartment building. Now, that's one of nine attacks on one day. That's the kind of thing that's happening every day. I mean, every day we're seeing up to a 100 strikes in one region or strikes on up to 50 different towns or villages in one region. And we're talking about, you know, anything up to 10 different regions and you know, on many, many days, we're talking, you know, up to 10 people killed. So that's the first thing to say is that Ukrainians are losing their lives, you know, every day. Um, you're correct to point out that this is targeting, these attacks are targeting civilian infrastructure. It's been pretty well documented um, that the Russian forces have been targeting energy infrastructure. Uh, Zelensky, uh, I guess a couple of months ago now, gave a figure of 50% of the energy infrastructure being um, either completely destroyed or, or non-functional. Um, the energy infrastructure is not the only um, civilian in- infrastructure. I mean, uh, as of 31st, I think it was the 31st of January, the WHO gave a figure of 1,218 medical facilities have been struck, um, 3,100 educational institutions. Um, so Ukrainians are living day to day with air raid um, alerts 
needing to evacuate um, and losing their lives. Then that that's in the in the parts that I mean they're in the parts that, of Ukraine that are not currently occupied. Now, if we look to life under Russian occupation, parts of Ukraine that are now occupied by Russian forces, um, we see something that is also um, cruel and and destructive. Um, first of all, we need to explain that severe Russification is taking place. Now, Russification um, is not new um, in the history of Ukraine. Russification was undertaken by both the Soviet regime and the Russian Empire, and we're seeing this now again. What what does Russification mean? Well, it controls every aspect of civilian life. Um, it involves the compulsory use of Russian language um, in schools and civil institutions, and it is based upon an anti-Ukraine ideology, um, an ideology that, for example, that states that Ukraine does not exist as a state, um, that Ukrainian language is inferior to Russian language. It's a policy. Russification is a policy designed to destroy Ukrainian national, linguistic and cultural identity. And that is now being opposed upon um, Ukrainians living under Russian occupation. We are also seeing totalitarian uh, control, kidnapping, disappearances, um, individuals who... Um, uh, who support Ukraine, who are not wanting um, to participate in the Russification of civil structures such as the education system, teachers, for example, who don't want to teach the newly imposed um, Russian curriculum. They are detained. They're, in some cases they're tortured. In some cases they're murdered. Um, in many cases they're incarcerated in filtration camps. Um, we, there, there is a network of filtration camps, um, and Ukrainian citizens uh, are sent there, and for an indeterminate amount of time, um, if they are seen in any way to uh, be resisting to the local forces of Russification, um, Ukrainians are removed from libraries and destroyed. We're seeing book burnings. We're seeing, as I said, this new Russian curriculum in schools. Um, parents who do not send their children to the uh, school to, to be indoctrinated by the new Russian curriculum, they are threatened um, that their children will be taken away from them. And that is a very serious threat because we know that thousands of children have been deported to Russia. Um, and, you know, that is something that is now being reported on very widely. Um, information blackouts, um, the access to the internet to telephone providers um, is is severely uh, restricted um, so that Ukrainians living in those occupied areas can't easily get access to um, information as to what, you know, is really happening. And torture chambers to put it bluntly, and mass graves have been discovered in all the territories that have been occupied um, by the Russian forces. So, I mean, places like Butcher and Irpin had quite a bit of uh, media attention, but also uh, Chernihiv uh, region. After the um, Russian forces withdrew, mass graves, torture chambers 
are being discovered there as well. So this is uh, life under Russian occupation. And then the third aspect I suppose we need to mention is the close to 5 million Ukrainians who have left, have have um, taken refuge in Europe. And as of the 31st of January, the figure is close to 5 million uh, Ukrainian refugees registered in Europe, across Europe for temporary protection. And their lives um, are, uh, you know, have been severely disrupted. Families are separated. They're needing to somehow create a life for themselves in a country, um, you know, with a different language without which they have, um, you know, without means and resources. So on many, many levels, um, you know, civilians are suffering in Ukraine. David, if I could just uh, j- jump into that and uh, thank you, Sonia, for this uh, poignant and uh, I think uh, wonderfully informative uh, account of what's happening there. It's just a bit of personal experience. When the war began, I was in Australia, but my parents were in Ukraine. And so uh, when I was speaking to them during the first week of the full-scale invasion, my sort of horror scenario would be, what if the air raid siren goes off as I speak to them and sort of the, the emotional impact that would have, even though you know, probably it's nothing in practical terms because those alarms go off across the entire country, whatever bombers fly out from Crimea or Belgrade or whatever, but just the notion of talking to your parents and hearing air raid sirens in the background was almost unbearable. And thankfully that never happened. But of course, that's a faint not even a faint echo of what's happening in the country on a daily basis. And people have adjusted and are able to go about their daily lives in those circumstances. But I think there's a tension there between this superficial normality in what fundamentally remain wholly abnormal circumstances. Mm. So just a quick anecdote there. Anton, if you don't mind, I'll also hop in with a personal um, anecdote. In I have family, well, across Ukraine, but I have family in the Chernihiv uh, region, that is north, um, northeast of north of north of Kiev. Um, for our listeners who may not be well acquainted with the map of Ukraine, um, and as you say, I mean, there's there's almost an eerie kind of normalisation of what is um, a war zone. And we are able, I am able um, to speak every evening or close to every evening um, with my cousin and, and as we speak, an air raid siren will, will sound and, you know, we'll, we'll need to cut the story short because the conversation's short. Sometimes she, she'll actually say, look, I don't think that one needs to be acted upon. We can still talk a little bit longer. I can't do that. I can't um, manage to do that. But the other side, uh, the other aspect that comes forward is that because of the energy, energy blackouts, because of the restrictions on um, gas and electricity and um, heating and water, um, there have been times where her, the part of Chernihiv that she lives in has only an hour or two hours of electricity per day. And we've had conversations where she's, we're, we're talking and she suddenly says, oops, the electricity has gone on. I have to run. 
because I've just got to get everything done in this next hour. It'll probably be on for about an hour and I need to get everything done that has to be done. Um, and we need to try to heat up this one room that we're sitting in and we need to try to do, you know, things that involve daily life. Um, so it is, it is, um, it is shocking. It is really shocking that in this day and age, you know, innocent people are subjected to this. We'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Thank you both so much for your your openness and your uh, sort of your honesty, your personal experiences. It's just it's harrowing and it's incredibly hard to hear, even as as people who are somewhat removed from the whole circumstances. It's just um, is something that I think people need to hear and understand in Australia. So I, I appreciate your your willingness to to share from those personal experiences. Um, Anton, if I could just turn back to you now. Uh, when it comes to how we assist the people of Ukraine at the present, uh, is there more the international community could be doing to provide financial assistance? Uh, so one area that I think um, I'd, I'd like to hear a bit more about is um, recent discussions on the potential use of uh, frozen or seized Russian assets to help fund Ukraine's reconstruction. Um, so from my, my understanding, there's been over $350 billion in Russian state assets, foreign reserves, and oligarch property that's been frozen or seized by Western banks and governments. Um, but in recent months, uh, the governments of Canada, Poland, the Baltic states, and the European Commission have begun to talk publicly about how these resources could be um, repurposed and or, or for the funds provided to Ukraine from this, this uh, quantum of, of seized assets. What could actually be done with those? Is are there any sort of legal impediments to the idea of turning these Russian acts, uh, assets over to Ukraine? That really is the three hundred and fifty billion dollar question, and the discussion of that has been trundling on for almost a year now. As I mentioned, uh, those assets have been very quickly frozen, at least those that belong to the Russian central bank. But then, not much has happened by way of actual confiscation. And when we think about this whole issue of what people in Europe in particular call freeze to seize, so moving from temporary freezing measures to permanent confiscation or seizure, we really need to distinguish between two buckets of property. 
One is the property that belongs directly to the Russian state, especially the Central Bank of Russia. And the second bucket is the property of Russian oligarchs, officials, and other people who might or might not be affiliated with the regime. But effectively, that's private property. So the private property piece, I think, is particularly complicated. And there we run into fundamental issues of the rule of law. Why on earth would we seize private property unless it either derives from crime or is being used to commit a crime? And in relation to many of those people, unpleasant though they might seem, it's difficult to prove in a court of law that their property actually derives from crime or is being used to commit a crime. And they were run into a fundamental question where I think you, you, know, you, you can't have it both ways. You've got to sacrifice something. And if you say that that property is liable to confiscation, you're going to sacrifice some of the rule of law principles that are uh, long lasting and uh, have been uh, cherished in many of those Western countries. In relation to the state owned property, on the other hand, we don't have that fundamental dilemma. Here we've got assets that belong directly to the Russian state that is, without any doubt, involved in a pattern of egregious violations of international law in Ukraine, starting with the aggressive war itself and all the way to various violations of the laws of war. And the reason why those assets have not yet been seized and the main challenge there is the application of the law of sovereign immunities under international law, which protects sovereign property from seizure. And I think there's a bitter irony there because we've got those Russian assets that have been frozen. The amount is roughly commensurate to the damages that Ukraine has suffered so far, even though those are growing with each day. And then we say that we're not going to go after those assets. And why? Well, out of respect for international law. Now look at how much respect Russia has shown towards international law. Um, as it happens, I think that there are legitimate arguments under international law why sovereign immunities might not apply in this context. And a lot of that has to do with a rather technical area of the law of state responsibility that is known as countermeasures. And the fundamental premise is very straightforward. You can deviate from your international obligations vis-a-vis -vis another state in response to that state's prior breach of international law. In other words, Russia does not respect international law and we can take some measures in response to that. But where I think the crux of the matter really is, is the policy side of that. And it is telling that the United States in particular has been forward-leaning in relation to multiple sanctions measures, but not on this front, not when it comes to the potential confiscation of central bank property, because countries like the United States and the United Kingdom have benefited tremendously from being safe havens for foreign capital for a very long period of time, and they don't want to jeopardize that position. They don't want other countries from other regions around the world to look at what's happening and say, well, what if tomorrow we upset the US? Are they going to confiscate our assets? Um, that sort of turmoil would be inimical potentially to the economic interests of the US and the UK. And I think that this is really where the dilemma is. It's those concerns on the one hand, um, as, as opposed to, on the other hand, a very real humanitarian and economic case in favor of confiscating those assets. Because at the end of the day, someone is going to pay for Ukrainian reconstruction. And unless Ukraine uh, continues to be an area of humanitarian disaster on European borders, other countries are going to chip in. And the natural question is, why not Russia? Sonia, if we were to think ahead and consider how 
the war might end. Uh, I understand that President Zelensky has released a 10-point peace plan, uh, I think back in November of last year, and has been seeking support for a global peace summit based on the, um, the, the points contained in that plan. Could you tell us a bit more about this plan? What does it contain? Um, how has it been received internationally to date? Sure, I'd be happy to um, explain that. Before I do that, can I just go back to the last question? Because I realised that you asked me about um, the experience of the civilian population, the Ukrainian people, um, and but you also asked about the resistance and the resilience. So could I just spend yeah, a few minutes sure. talking about that side and then, then I'll go on to Zelensky's 10-point peace plan. Um, I think what um, has stunned the world is the resilience um, of the Ukrainian people. And I would say that the best way to describe it is that the population is devastated but defiant. And we saw this very early uh, after the full-scale invasion um, in February of last year where we saw civilians um, joining the war effort at various levels. So, for example, you know, we not only saw people, men and women, um, volunteering to join the armed forces, but we also saw local volunteer battalions, you know, locals who would, who stepped up to defend their own territory, you know, their own local kind of territory. We also saw citizens without any training, without any military training, who had no idea that they would ever be called upon, um, you know, to hold a weapon, prepared to take a weapon or make a weapon in their own home. And hence we saw all those kinds of iconic images that were being circulated of, you know, the women making Molotov cocktails um, or, you know, an elderly gentleman standing in front of a, a line of, you know, Russian tanks as they were approaching. Um, you know, that kind of, that kind of resistance um, arose because the Ukrainian population understood the nature of this fight. I mean, the, the Ukrainian people understood that they that they had to fight not only for their actual land and their homes, but for their very right to exist as Ukrainians, their their right to um, speak Ukrainian, to practice Ukrainian cultural traditions, um, to retain their Ukrainian national and cultural identity. And we also saw that resistance um, in the form of very strong volunteering movement. Um, I remember, I think it was two days after February 24, um, a young parliamentarian, her name is Inna Sovsun, she um, has a blog and I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was February 26. It was very soon after the full-scale invasion. She actually wrote an article on her blog that was headed something like, we have an army of 40 million people, and in which she went on to say that Putin has misjudged the Ukrainian people, um, that, that, you know, Russia has made an enemy out of every Ukrainian. And interestingly enough, these were her words. She said, quote, we have a level of self-organisation which people in an authoritarian country are simply incapable of understanding of comprehending. Um, and what she was referring to is the fact that civilians were getting themselves together in um, formal and, and informal groups and uh, 
assisting, helping in the war effort. Um, and that was, you know, everything from um, women who had previously worked in the fashion industry um, coming together and sewing uniforms for the Ukrainian army. Um, we saw university students getting together and working out how to manufacture candles and sort of canned heat that could be sent then to the front line. Um, we saw women um, using uh, rags and, you know, torn bits of material to uh, weave camouflage netting, which would then be delivered. The other thing is we saw communal kitchens all across Ukraine where um, people who were not, you know, in the military um, would get together and and using, you know, local resources, perhaps a, a community hall or a church hall or or a school uh, basement, they would get together and they would cook meals and those meals would be delivered to soldiers, um, you know, at the front or soldiers, you know, close to the front. Um, I know I have, you know, one contact in Deview. Now, she um, she is close to 80 years old and she, together with a group of seven other um, Ukrainians close to her age, a group of eight senior citizens, in that first month after February 24, that group of eight senior citizens distributed 50,000 kilograms of humanitarian aid. They organised for the purchase of items and products in Poland and they distributed it to hospitals, to refugees, um, to dis you know, internally displaced Ukrainians and to the army. And I remember really clearly when she wrote me an email um, and it was, despite what they were going through, it had such optimism. You know, she just, she literally wrote to me saying, everyone is sewing Ukrainian flags. Everyone is singing Ukrainian songs. Everyone is planning mass protests. There are lines of men uh, waiting to enlist. There are lines outside each hospital with people waiting to donate blood. Um, and, and, and she made the point too that the, the, the Ukraine, you know, Ukrainians had never been so united around the president um, and, you know, how united they were. Now, in at that time, the opinion polls uh, were, were constantly coming in saying that something like 94% of Ukrainians believed that Ukraine would defeat Russia. Now, fast forward to November of last year when it's winter, it's, it's a Ukrainian winter, it's not an Australian winter, and you've got energy uh, blackouts, energy shortages, you've got, you know, lack of heating, lack of sometimes even lack of running water. Um, the November opinion polls were coming in with 98% of the population saying that they would rather be without electricity, heating, running water than surrender to Russia. So the morale... Um, the resilience of the Ukrainian people um, is not waning. Uh, I suppose that uh, sort of points to the, um, I suppose maybe some of the, the ambitions or the the substance of that plan, doesn't it? It, it speaks to the, um, to the to the strength of that morale and that um, sort of positivity within the Ukrainian mm. people that they're going to succeed. Is is that a fair characterization? I, th I think so. I, I, I think that, um, I mean, the resilience is remarkable, but the commitment 
to seeing this through. Um, I, I know, for example, in the case of my family in Shunyi, who've, um, my cousin is in the military and he, he sees this as something he's doing for his children so that his children can return. They're currently refugeeing, um, outside of Ukraine. Um, he's, he's fighting the fight so that his children can return to their home. Um, and, and I don't sense any doubt in his mind or in any of the Ukrainians who I know in Ukraine, I don't sense any doubt in their mind that that will happen. The question is how long it will happen and how many innocent lives have to be, have to be lost or will be lost. Perhaps don't have to be, but will be lost. Um, about, so, oh, and Tom, did you want to add something to that? Do you think? No? Um, no, no, I, I was just uh, listening spellbound to this. I think uh, this is uh, an excellent summary of the mood music that I'm getting from Ukraine as well. Um, so I, I would definitely agree with all of that. Great, thanks. Now, on to um, Zelensky's 10-point peace formula. Okay, so Zelensky's put forward uh, a 10-point peace formula and he's itemised uh, 10 issues that would need to be addressed before a peace treaty could be negotiated. Now, the first is radiation and nuclear security, so the involvement of the International Atomic Energy Agency to monitor um, all the nuclear assets in Ukraine. Secondly, food security, um, continuation of the uh, export of Ukrainian grain under um, international kind of scrutiny. The grain initiative has to continue. Thirdly, energy security. Now, that just literally means repairing and rebuilding the damaged and destroyed infrastructure, energy infrastructure, which sits, sits at his figure of about 50% destroyed. Um, fourthly, the release of all prisoners of war and deportees. So at the moment we know of 11,000 children and hundreds of thousands of adults who have been re- deported against their will to Russia. They would need to be given the opportunity to return. Uh, fifthly, the restoration of Ukraine's territorial integrity. And sixth, the total withdrawal of all Russian troops from Ukraine. Well, that that goes without saying. I mean, Zelensky will simply not negotiate anything while um, Russia is attacking uh, Ukraine and while Russian forces are occupying Ukrainian territory. Seven, seventh point, punishment for war crimes. So justice really for the gen- genocidal atrocities we've been seeing. He's suggesting the establishment of a special tribunal. Um, eight, protection for the environment. This is something that perhaps doesn't get a lot of attention and it really should. I mean, at the moment, 200,000 hectares of land in Ukraine is contaminated by landmines. Um, and then, you know, that's not to mention even the atmospheric kind of chemical pollution from all of the, um, destruction there. And lastly, ninth, um, a new security infrastructure, um, a new sort of, guarantee new guarantees or architecture ukraine is not a member of any alliance and so Zelensky said that there would have to be some sort of security agreement put in place simply to make sure that russia doesn't regroup in a few more years and do this all over again so with those nine things in place then ukraine would uh, proceed to signing a peace treaty now you mentioned quickly how has this you know been been um how has this been what word am i looking for how has this been Received well, we internationally. Yeah. Received, okay. Uh, now, you, you mentioned, you know, how has this been received? I think that 
um, it's starting to get a lot of traction in Europe. Uh, it's not being reported on so widely here, I think, which um, is a pity, but we're starting to see support uh, gathering. Now, just one example, uh, the French president, um, Macron. Now, on December 11, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was December 11, uh, Zelensky reported that Macron had stated that he supports the implementation of this 10-point peace formula. Now, that's pretty significant, actually, because Macron had been previously um, inferring that Ukraine should consider losing some territory, consider Putin's need to save face. Um, and at, at one point, Macron even suggested that Ukraine should enter negotiations prior to Russian withdrawal. Um, you know, of its military forces. So that's quite a development for, you know, after the November tabling of this peace plan for, you know, Zelensky, uh, for Macron to actually support that. I think that echoes um, the the pretty much widespread support amongst amongst most European countries. I mean, in, in essence, the countries who have already been um, assisting and supporting Ukraine. Anton, if I could just throw to you for our final question, uh, and, and sort of I think building on this uh, this conversation around the peace plan and a possible peace treaty, um, if we were to cast our minds forward, um, but also I guess back at the same time, a, a, a part of post-war settlements in both the First and Second World Wars included reparations, um, and we're talking about a, a potential down-the-line peace treaty in in with regards to Russia and Ukraine, and we spoke just before around uh, the potential use of seized Russian assets now to support Ukraine. Uh, to your knowledge, have there's, has there been any conversation around um, post-war reparations in this instance? Um, is that something that's been discussed? And sort of what circumstances would they apply under? That's closely related to the whole frozen assets issue. So uh, basically, the question is, how does Ukraine get compensated for the damage that Russia has inflicted? And the Ukrainian government's proposal is to create an international claims commission that would take ownership of the frozen assets and then distribute those for the benefit of the victims. The preferred position that the European Commission came out with is to say, look, we're just going to keep those froze, frozen assets frozen. They're going to stay in place until a peace settlement is reached between Ukraine and Russia. Presumably, that peace settlement will provide for some reparations to be payable by Russia to Ukraine. And then, in satisfaction of those reparations, the frozen assets might be seized or transferred to Ukraine. So, in a sense, the proposal is simply to kick the can down the road and say, we're not going to take any radical measures now because those might be politically explosive and controversial, to put it mildly from the standpoint of international law, but we hope that an agreement will be reached further down the line. The problem with this is twofold. Uh, first, what is the incentive for Russia to uh, come to that agreement, uh, given that you know basically they're not getting their assets back anyway? It would seem no one's willing to uh, re reinstall them to Russia. And, uh, you know, then the uh, second problem is that uh, from the Ukrainian perspective, reparations post-war are great, but funds now that would support the war fighting effort uh, would be even better. And so I don't think that we've seen the final word on that yet. And I would imagine that 
as we've seen this issue sort of floating around in the ether for this past year, those discussions are going to continue. And much will come down to basically how uh, radical do Western states, and in particular European Union member states, want to be in supporting Ukraine and potentially taking those uh, frozen assets. A lot to consider there. I think uh, while we may not have the the hands on the levers ourselves, it's, it's still a a deeply complex issue that I think plays into all of our all of our lives in some way or another. So, um, Sonia and Anton, uh, I'd like to thank you so much for your time today, for your expertise. It's been a a wide ranging discussion. Um, there's much more that could have been said and that that we didn't. Um, but thank you so much for your time, for your insights, uh, and once again, thank you, Sonia and Anton. Thank you. Thank you very much. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.